namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om ajnanate marandasya janajana shalakaya I was born in the darkest ignorance, and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Shri Chaitanya Manovistam Stapitam Jena Bhutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadatit Swapadantikam. When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who has established within this material world the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vancha kalpa terubhyascha kripa sanubhyavacha patita anam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namo namaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone, and they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhaktavrinda. I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Lord Nityananda, Sri Advaita, Gadadhar Pandit, Sri Thakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I pray that Sri Sri Radha Kalachanji, Srila Prabhupada, and Srila Gurudev use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. So today is Tuesday, December 28th, 2021. I am Jai Shri Radhe Devi Dasi, and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 12, Birth of Emperor Parikshit, Text 21. Danvina Magra Nir Esha Tulyascha Junar Yordavyo Utashaiva Durdasha Samudraiva Dushtara Danvina Magraniresha Tulias Charjunayo Devya Bhutashaiva Durdashaha Samudra Iva Dushtara Danvina Magraniresha Tulias Charjuna Yordavyo Bhutashaiva Durdasha Samudra Ibadustara Danvinam of the great bowman Agrini the foreman Esha this child Tulya equally good Sha and Arjunaho of the Arjunas Vayo of the two, 
Utashaha, fire, Shiva, like, Durdashaha, irresistible, Samudra, ocean, Shiva, like, Dustraha, unsurpassable. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Amongst great bowmen, this child will be as good as Arjuna. He will be as irresistible as fire and as unsurpassable as the ocean. Purport. In history, there are two Arjunas. One is Gartha Virya Arjuna, the king of Haya, and the other is the grandfather of the child. Both the Arjunas are famous for their bowmanship, and the child Parikshit is foretold to be equal to both of them, particularly in fighting. A short description of the Pandava Arjuna is given below. Pandava Arjuna, the great hero of the Bhagavad Gita. He is the Kshatriya son of Maharaj Pandu. Queen Kunti Devi could call for any of the de- one of the demigods, and thus she called Indra, and Arjuna was born by him. Arjuna is therefore a plenary part of the heavenly king Indra. He was born in the month of Falguna, February-March, and therefore he is called Falguni. When he appeared as the son of Kunti, his future greatness was proclaimed by air messages, and all the important personalities from different parts of the universe, such as the demigods, the Gandharvas, the Adityas from the sun globe, the Rudras, the Vasus, and the Nagas, the different rishis, sages of importance, and the Apsaras, society girls of heaven, all attended the ceremony. The Apsaras pleased everyone by their heavenly dances and songs. Vasudev, the father of Lord Krishna and the maternal uncle of Arjuna, sent his priest representative Kashyapa to purify Arjuna by all the prescribed samskaras, or reformatory processes. His samskara of being given a name was performed in the presence of the rishis, residents of Satashringa. He married four wives, Draupadi, Subhadra, Chitrangada, and Ulupi, from whom he got four sons of the names Shrutakirti, Abhimanyu, Vahana, and Irivan, respectively. During his student life, he was entrusted to study under the great professor Dronacharya, along with other Pandavas and the Kurus. But he excelled everyone by his studious intensity, and Dronacharya was especially attracted by his dis- disciplinary affection. Dronacharya accepted him as a first-grade scholar and loved heartily to bestow upon him all the blessings of military science. He was so ardent a student that he used to practice bowmanship even at night. And for all these reasons, Professor Dronacharya was determined to make him the topmost bowman of the world. He passed very brilliantly the examination in piercing the target, and Dronacharya was very pleased. Royal families at Manipura and Tripura are descendants of Arjuna's son, Babruvahana. Arjuna saved Dronacharya from the attack of a crocodile, and the Acharya, being pleased with him, rewarded him with the weapon of the name Brahmisharas. Maharaj Drupad was inimical toward Dronacharya, and thus when he attacked the Acharya, Arjuna got him arrested and brought him before Dronacharya. He besieged a city of the name 
Maharashtra, belonging to Maharaj Dupad, and after taking it over, he gave it to Dronacharya. The confidential treatment of the weapon Brahmisharas was explained to Arjuna, and Dronacharya was promised by Arjuna that he would use the weapon if necessary when he, Dronacharya, personally became an enemy of Arjuna. By this, the Acharya forecasted the future battle of Kurukshetra, in which Dronacharya was on the opposite side. Maharaj Drupad, although defeated by Arjuna on behalf of his professor, Dronacharya, decided to hand over his daughter Draupadi to his young combatant. But he was disappointed when he heard the false news of Arjuna's death in the fire of a shellac house intrigued by Duryodhan. He therefore arranged by Draupadi's personal selection of a groom who could pierce the eye of a fish hanging on the ceiling. This trick was especially made because only Arjuna could do it, and he was successful in his desire to hand over his equally worthy daughter to Arjuna. Arjuna's brothers were at that time living incognito under agreement with Duryodhan, and Arjuna, his brothers, attended the meeting of Draupadi's selection in the dress of Brahmanas. When all the Kshatriya kings assembled saw that a poor Brahmana had been garlanded by Draupadi for her lord, Sri Krishna, for her lord, Sri Krishna disclosed his identity to Balram. He met Ulupi at Haridwar, or Hardwar, and he was attracted by that girl belonging to Nagaloka. Thus, Iravan was born. Similarly, he met Chitrangada, a daughter of the king of Manipura, and thus Babruvahana was born. Lord Sri Krishna made a plan to help Arjuna to kidnap Subhadra, sister of Sri Krishna, because Baladev was inclined to hand her over to Duryodhan. Yudhisthira also agreed with Sri Krishna, and thus Subhadra was taken by force by Arjuna and then married to him. Subhadra's son is Abhimanyu, the father of Parikshit Maharaj, the posthumous child. Arjuna satisfied the fire god by setting fire to the Kandava, Kandava forest, and thus the fire god gave him one weapon. Indra was angry when the fire was set in the Kandava forest, and thus Indra, assisted by all other demigods, began fighting with Arjuna for his great challenge. They were defeated by Arjuna, and Indradev returned to his heavenly kingdom. Arjuna also promised all protection to one Mayasura, and the latter rep- latter presented him one valuable conch shell celebrated as a devadatta. Similarly, he received many other valuable weapons from Indradev when he, satisfied, when he was satisfied to see his chivalry. When Maharaj Yudhisthira was disappointed in defeating the king of Magadha, Jarasandha, it was Arjuna only who gave King Yudhisthira all kinds of assurances, and thus Arjuna, Bhima, and Lord Krishna started from Magadha to kill Jarasandha. When he went out to bring all other kings of the world under the subjugation of the Pandavas, as was usual after the coronation of every emperor, he conquered the country named Kalinda and brought in subjugation of King Bhagadatta. Then he traveled through countries like Antagiri, Ulukapura, and Modapura and brought under subjugation all the rulers. Sometimes he went severe Sometimes he underwent severe types of penances, and later on he was rewarded by Indradeva. Lord Shiva also wanted to try the strength of Arjuna, and in the form of an aborigine, Lord Shiva met him. There was a great fight between the two, and at last Lord Shiva was satisfied with him and disclosed his identity. 
Ajuna prayed to the Lord in all humbleness, and the Lord, being pleased with him, presented him with the Bashupatha weapon. He acquired many other important weapons from different demigods. He re- received Dandastra from Yamaraj, Bashastra from Varuna, and Antardhanastra from Kuvera, the treasure of the heavenly kingdom. Indra wanted him to come to the heavenly kingdom, the Indraloka planet beyond the moon planet. In that planet, he was cordially received by the local residents, and he was awarded reception in the heavenly parliament of Indradev. Then he met Indradev, who not only presented him with his Vajra weapon, but also taught him the military and musical science as used in the heavenly planet. In one sense, Indra is the real father of Arjuna, and therefore he indirectly and therefore, indirectly, he wanted to entertain Arjuna with the famous society girl of heaven, Urvashi, the celebrated beauty. The society girls of heaven are lusty, and Urvashi was very eager to contact Arjuna, the strongest human being. She met him in his room and expressed her desires, but Arjuna sustained his unimpeachable character by closing his eyes before Urvashi, addressing her as mother of the Kuru dynasty, and placing her in the category of his mothers, Kunti, Madri, and Sachidev. Sachidevi, wife of Indradev. Disappointed, Urvashi cursed Arjuna and left. In the heavenly planet, he also met the great celebrated ascetic, Lomasha, and prayed to him for the protection of Maharaj Yudhisthira. When his inimical cousin, Duryodhan, was under the clutches of the Gandharvas, he wanted to save him and requested the Gandharvas to release Duryodhan, But the Gandharvas refused, and thus he fought with them and got Duryodhan released. When all the Pandavas lived incognito, he presented himself in the court of King Virata as a eunuch and was employed as the musical teacher of Uttara, his future daughter-in-law, and was known in the Virata court as Brihanala. As Brihanala, he fought on behalf of Uttara, the son of King Virata, and thus defeated the Kurus in the fight incognito. His secret weapons were safely kept in the custody of a Somi tree, and he ordered Uttara to get them back. His identity and his brother's identity were later on disclosed to Uttara. Dronacharya was informed of Arjuna's presence in the fight of the Kurus and the Viratas. Later on, on the Battle of Kurukshetra, Arjuna killed many great generals like Karna and others. After the Battle of Kurukshetra, he punished Ashvatthama, who had killed all the five sons of Draupadi. And then all the brothers went to Bhishmadev. It is due to Arjuna only that the great philosophical discourses of the Bhagavad Gita were again spoken by the Lord on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. His wonderful acts on the battlefield of Kurukshetra are vividly described in the Mahabharata. Arjuna was defeated, however, by his son Babruvahana at Manipura and fell unconscious when Ulupi saved him. After the disappearance of Lord Krishna, the message was brought by Arjuna to Maharaj Yudhisthira. Again, Arjuna visited Dwarka, and all the widow wives of Lord Krishna lamented before him. He took them all in the presence of Vasudev and pacified all of them. Later on, when Vasudev passed away, he performed the, his funeral ceremony in the absence of Krishna. While Arjuna was taking all the wives of Krishna to Indraprastha, he was attacked on the way, and he could not protect the ladies in his custody. At last, advised by Vyasadeva, all the brothers headed for Mah- Maharas- Mahaprasthana. 
On the way, at the request of his brother, he gave up all important weapons as useless, and he dropped them all in the water. So we learn a lot about Arjuna in today's purport. You know, there's so many great feats, so many great acts that he did. We can see that he was a great hero and warrior. And while a lot of his accomplishments, they seem, you know, far-fetched, they may be really out there, so we can't really emulate all of them. But the one thing that we can learn from him is how, even through these great feats and his great power and strength, he always remained humble, and he was always compassionate. He even rescued his own enemy, Duryodhan, from the Gandharvas. If he hadn't done that, you know, maybe we wouldn't have had the Battle of Kurukshetra. So we can learn so much from him about how to live our lives. And we also see that no matter what happened in his life, right, he was banished to the forest, the shellac house was set on fire, they thought he was dead, he had to disguise himself in so many different ways to make sure that him and his brothers stayed safe. But no matter what happened, he always turned to Krishna, he was always surrendered to Krishna, and he remembered him. He perfectly embodies the adage, you know, we want to always remember Krishna and never forget him. Srila Prabhupada says in the purport of Srimad Bhagavatam 616, 53, and 54, for self-realization, one must always remember Krishna. As stated in the Padma Purana, we must always remember Lord Vishnu. We must never forget the Lord. This is the perfection of life. So actually, this is what makes Arjuna's life perfect. Not that he defeated so many enemies and he was a great warrior and a great bowmanship. It's that he always remembered Krishna and never forgot him. That was his perfection of life. Otherwise, what is the use of having such great skills and talents? So that's something that we can learn, that no matter how skilled we are at something, how talented we are at something, if we're doing that for Krishna, for Krishna's pleasure, that is perfection. If we're doing it for our own sense gratification, for our own power, right? We want to gain more wealth, more... Um, health, beauty, all of that stuff. We're doing it for our own personal sense gratification. No matter how great we are at it, we will never be perf- perfect or ex- achieve success. So success comes from su- uh, surrendering to Krishna and doing everything that we do for his pleasure. And we can see that in the examples so many times that everything he did, he either consulted with his good friend Krishna or he did it for Krishna's pleasure. He did it under the guidance of Krishna. In Bhagavad Gita 18.45, Krishna says, By worship of the Lord, who is the source of all beings and who is all-pervading, can, one can, in the performance of their own duty, attain perfection. So this brings us to um, a quote that I hear Rathatva Goswami say a lot, who's actually quoting my spiritual master, Tamal Krishna Goswami in which he says, be who you are, but be that for Krishna. So when we are serving Krishna, we don't have to change who we are. We don't have to change our inherent nature. We just have to use our nature and use our skills for Krishna. So it's a matter of being true to who we are, but also realizing that who we are is an eternal servant of Krishna, and then using who we are to serve him. So... When we look at all of these things that Arjuna did, I would propose that this greatest accomplishment 
is that during the Battle of Kurukshetra, when he had so many doubts and so much anxiety, he immediately turned to his good friend, Krishna, and surrendered and said, please help me. I don't know what to do in this moment. And that's another great example that we can follow, right? In times of great calamity, in times of great distress, sometimes we tend to, like, shut down and go, oh, my God, why is this happening to me? I can, you know... I don't know what to do, and we can throw our hands up, and we can make the wrong decision, or sometimes we feel so overwhelmed that we do nothing, right? So we we have felt that way that Arjuna has felt in many ways when he's facing this dilemma of seeing his teachers, his family, his kin on the other side of the battlefield, um, and then feeling like, what do I need to do? Because this is a lose-lose situation, right? Like, if I if we defeat them... I'll have killed so many of my family members and what good is having success without someone to share it with? And then if we are defeated, you know, what good is that? So he felt that he was in this lose-lose situation. And so in this greatest moment of doubt, he turns to Krishna and humbly surrenders to him and says, you know, teach me. What do I need to do in this moment? Tell me and I will do it. In the introduction to the Bhagavad Gita, Srila Prabhupada states, Vedic knowledge is not a question of research. Our research work is imperfect because we are researching things with imperfect senses. We have to accept perfect knowledge which comes down, as is stated in Bhagavad Gita, by the parampara disciplic succession. We have to receive knowledge from the proper source and disciplic succession, beginning with the supreme spiritual master, the Lord himself, and handed down to a succession of spiritual masters. So this is important that we have to learn this knowledge of connecting to Krishna, who is Krishna, how do we surrender to him through the disciplic succession passed down through, the ma- through spiritual teachers, through spiritual masters. And Krishna further confirms this in um, Bhagavad Gita 4.34. He says, just try to learn the truth by appro- approaching a spiritual master. Inquire from them submissively and render service unto them. The self-realized soul can impart knowledge unto you because they have seen the truth. And this is what Arjuna does when he has this great moment of doubt. He inquires submissively from Krishna. And he renders service unto him, right? Just by surrendering in that moment, he's serving him. And he has served Krishna his whole life. Every activity that he's done, every feat, every challenge that he's gone through was for Krishna's pleasure, for us to learn from his example, Arjuna was willing to go through so many challenges. In the purport of Bhagavad Gita 2.7, Prabhupada explains that by nature's own way, the complete system of material activities is a source of perplexity for everyone. In every step, there is perplexity. And therefore, it behooves one to approach a bona fide spiritual master who can give one proper guidance for executing the purpose of life. So this is what we want to learn, is that we have to approach a bona fide spiritual master. You know, when I wanted to become a doctor, I didn't just go, okay, I'm a doctor. Right? I had to learn, I had to study, I had to learn under professors, I had to go to medical school. And then that's still not enough. I had to go through residency to learn real-life examples, to have the experience of doing all the things that I've read and studied about, but under the guidance of a teacher. So there's so many things in our lives that we turn to someone that has a little bit more authority 
on the matter than we do, right? If you're wanting to get fit, you want to consult with a fitness trainer um, so they can teach you the proper ways of doing exercises, what exercises would benefit you, right? So we have this concept of teacher and student all throughout our lives. And yet sometimes when it comes to spirituality, we think we don't need a teacher. We think, oh, well, I'll just turn internally and, you know, my intuition, or I'll just know what to do. But we don't see that to be the case for anything else in the material world. So similarly, we have to understand that in order to to really clarify our path to Krishna, we need guidance outside of ourselves. Because sometimes we can mistake the message that's coming in from, you know, that we think is, oh, this is Krishna from within us telling us. But it might just be ourselves wanting to, you know, continue with our own sense gratification, continue with things that are comfortable. I know that um, oftentimes when I'm looking to do something that's major to help a lot of people, um, inside my, you know, my thoughts are like, oh, just, you don't need to do that. What's the point? You may not be successful. You, you know, you don't want to put yourself out there and then fail, and then all the people will think about how much you failed, right? But that's really my mind trying to keep me safe and comfortable, whereas the real message is, no, it's important to put ourselves out there because people need to hear the message that I might have that might inspire them to act in a certain way, um, more so than anyone else because they may relate to me but more than they relate to someone else that has that same message. So, you know, I was listening to this um, personal development speaker. His name is Les Brown. And he was saying that we each are given our own service from God. And it's our own unique message that we have to carry out to others. And if we don't do that, then we have failed our purpose in life. And if we don't do that, that message dies with us. Because we were the only ones that can carry that particular message in that particular way for a certain group of people. So, you know, we have to understand what's actually Krishna's voice and what's our own voice. And we can only do that with someone external. Even the people that say, oh, we don't need a spiritual master. I see them talk things through with other people, right? They go for advice through other people. If we were if we were truly in touch with our perfect and complete self, we don't need to consult with anyone for anything, right? We can just consult Krishna within us, and we're, we can hear that. But because we have so much conditioning of material life, we have so much conditioning of our desires, that message that we think, oh, we're perfect and complete within ourselves, which is true, we are, but we're so covered up with material desires and material conditionings and being here on this planet for thousands and thousands of lives that we don't actually hear that. Um, sometimes, you know, one of the things that I do is I talk to people about eating healthy. And sometimes people say, well, I just listen to my own body, what it craves, what it wants. But because we are so used to eating foods that are not good for us, like you know, we may eat a lot of processed foods. We may eat meat. We may eat um, fish or other things that, you know, we were raised culturally to eat these things. Well, we can crave them because that's what the body is used to. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's good for us. There's so many studies that are coming out now that show that meat and animal products are not good for the body. 
Um, they actually decrease the health, right? So initially you might think, oh, this is the message from internally, but someone's guiding you to say, no, let's slowly um, eat healthier, eat more vegetables, more fruits, more plant foods. And initially you may not even like them. But as you start eating more and more of it, you get used to that and you start craving that instead. So you change the way you taste. In the same way, when you're under the guidance of a spiritual master, they may tell you to do something that you're not used to doing or it doesn't feel comfortable to do. But as you get to do it more and more, you're like, oh, this is very easy. This is what I was meant to do. And so a spiritual master that knows our nature can tell us, you know, guide us in that way. In that same purport from Bhagavad Gita 2.7, Prabhupada continues on, all Vedic literatures advise us to approach a bona fide spiritual master to get free from the perplexities of life which happen without our desire. They are like a forest fire that somehow blazes without being set by anyone. Similarly, the world situation is such that perplexities of life automatically appear with our, our wanting such confusion. So, you know, the calamities, the perplexities of life continue. We don't have to ask for them. We don't have to seek them out. Nobody sought out COVID and the pandemic. Right? Nobody sought out to be locked down for a year and a half. But that just happened, right? Like, we went through that. We had to experience that challenging time in our lives. We may have lost so many people that were close to us, family members, friends, um, whether it was to coronavirus or some of the indirect effects of COVID. Um, so we didn't have to ask for that. That just came. So similarly, we don't have to ask for perplexities, and we can't hide from them. They're going to come no matter what. In this last year and a half, COVID except, uh, affected the entire world. It wasn't like there was a single place on this planet that was safe from COVID. So, you know, sometimes we see in the past when we've had pandemics and play, like the plague, it would affect a certain area of Europe and the rest of the world would be fine. Um, you know, so we've seen different things like that. But now in this particular case, there was no area that was fine could be because, you know, we're a lot more um, able to travel the globe than we were back when the, you know, the plague hit. They only had ships, and as, as soon as they would find cases of the plague, that area would be quarantined, and no ships were allowed to come there, and they would have to stop trade and all that stuff. So the difference is this, this affected everybody all across the globe. Even if ourselves we didn't get coronavirus or covid we were still affected, you know, being locked down, being at home, not being able to socialize, um, not, you know, some people lost their jobs, some people got a decrease in pay from their jobs. So there were so many hardships. So the material world is filled with them, right? And this is another reason why we want to be under the guidance of a spiritual master, because they help us navigate these perplexities of life. Prabhupada goes on to say, no one wants fire, yet it takes place, and we become perplexed. The Vedic wisdom therefore advises that in order to solve the perplexities of life and to understand the science of the solution, one must approach a spiritual master who is in the disciplic succession. This is what's important. The spiritual master has to be in this disciplic succession. It's not somebody random. It's 
not somebody that, you know, is just going to tell you to do things that increase their own wealth and power. They're actually connecting you to Krishna. And we want to make sure that our, the spiritual master that we choose is competent. In the purport of um, Srimad Bhagavatam 2.9.37, Srila Prabhupada states, the guru or the bona fide spiritual master is competent to teach the disciple in the right path with reference to the context of all authentic literature. They do not attempt to juggle words to bewilder the student. The bona fide spiritual master by their personal activities teaches the disciple the principles of devotional service. So here's two key points. There's two key points here is that they, the spiritual master makes things simple, breaks it down. They don't try to make things overly complicated um, that only a certain amount of people can understand. They want to make it very simple. As we see that Srila Prabhupada did when he came you know, to America, he brought this wisdom of Vedic literature, which is vast and can be very complicated. And he distilled it down to the essence to make it very simple, right? Chant Hare Krishna, read his books, right? Chant and be merry, right? That was his message to us. And that's really all we need to do is chant. And then the second thing is they live the principles that they're teaching. They're not just teaching it and not doing it themselves. They're actually walking the walk. They're talking the talk. So they're leading by example, And through their own personal activities, they're teaching. Right? They're showing that this is how you worship the deities. This is how you chant. Every morning during um, Japa time, we have Prabhupada chanting because that's what he would do too. It wasn't like he told us to chant and then he wasn't chanting. He was chanting, and he, you can hear it when he chants. Even in the recording, you can hear the love right, in his chanting. You can hear his compassion when he's chanting. You know, it's he chants really fast. If you try to keep up with him, you can't keep up with him. But that's how, you know, like, that's the power of chanting um, when he's that elevated soul, that he has such power in his chanting because he's chanting. It's not because he's elevated soul and his chanting has power. His chanting has power um, because he's chanting, and that makes him the elevated soul. So we want to take that example Prabhupada goes on to say, without personal service, one would go on speculating like the impersonalists and dry speculators life after life and would be unable to reach the final conclusion. By following the instructions of the bona fide spiritual master in conjunction with the principles of revealed scriptures, the student will rise to the plane of complete knowledge which will be exhibited by development of detachment from the world of sense gratification. So here again, you know, it reiterates this concept that we can't just rely on our own selves and, and what we think and, you know, speculating, which means like, you know, we take, oh, well, if this means this, then this means this. And we can do some type of, you know, we want to make sure that we realize this information that we're reading about. But we want to also make sure that we're not coming up with our own conclusions that are um, false, right? They're poorly drawn conclusions. And so we do that by consulting um, devotees that are more senior to us, by consulting our spiritual master, to make sure that we're on the right path of the way we think. I think previously we were discussing 
like religious wars, right? Or um, atrocities that are taken, that are done in the name of religion. And we can see that sometimes this could be a misguided attempt at spreading their own philosophy of belief. It could be misunderstanding of what's actually written in the scriptures and misinterpreting it through the lens of how um, we, through the lens of how we, you know, our experiences in the world. So if someone's had poor experiences and they read something about how, you know, Arjuna went and killed people that were against him or, you know, fought a king who had done some wrong and they feel like I was wronged. And then they say, well, this great soul Arjuna did this, therefore I can do it. And so they misinterpret the messages of the, the Vedic scriptures and they act uh, in a poor way, in a way that's not conducive for their spiritual life and is also harmful for those around them. So it's important that we don't just rely on our own um, thoughts and you know how we're interpreting the, the scriptures but also through spiritual master, which then also um, is uh, there's it's a, there's also the same conclusion drawn by other senior um, disciples of Srila Prabhupada, of Srila Prabhupada, you know himself. So we want to make sure that all three of these things are in conjunction with each other: the message of the Vedas, the message of the Guru, the spiritual master and the message of senior devotees, sadhus. And then only can we develop detachment of the world of sense gratification. And that's when we know we're on the right path. We start to notice that we are acting and we have compassion, and we start to develop the qualities that we read about in the Bhagavad Gita, like humbleness, compassion, truthfulness, you know, these austerity, these kinds of things. We start to notice in ourselves when we're on the right path. So the other part of the statement of um, in the Bhagavad Gita 4.34, it says, just by approaching a spiritual master, inquiring from them submissively. So we also have qualifications as students of how we can accept um, a spiritual master, and a spiritual master will accept us as students. So we must qualify ourselves. In the purport of Srimad Bhagavatam 1.529, Prabhupada says, they themselves must be plain and gentle to receive the instructions of such a pure devotee. A pure devotee is completely surrendered soul unto the personality of Godhead. They know the personality of Godhead as the supreme proprietor and all others as, servitor, as his servitors. And by the association of pure devotees only, one can get rid of all sins accumulated by mundane association. A neophyte devotee must faithfully serve the pure devotee, and they must very be very much obedient and strictly follow the instructions. These are the signs of a devotee who is determined to achieve success, even in the existing duration of life. So this is the point. They must be sincere. They must have faith. They must be plain and gentle, submissive, humble, and then very much obedient, right? So that comes from that submissiveness. Now, sometimes that can be scary in the material world to be obedient and submissive to someone because all we see are examples of people taking advantage of that. However, we've gone through the, the um, qualities of the spiritual master 
right? So even before you surrender to a spiritual master, you know, that you're going to, you know, follow submissively and be obedient to, you make sure that they are qualified, that they are actually acting only in the benefit of connecting you as the soul to Krishna, to, you know, following in the messages of the parampara, the disciplic succession. And then we have to be ready for it. We have to want it, and we have to be willing to surrender, right? There's that saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will come. So we have to make ourselves ready by willing, being willing to surrender. I have a business coach, and we're going to be starting this 90-day um, focused, you know, laser-focused activities for the first 90 days of January of 2022. And he says, all you have to do is turn off your mind and do exactly what I tell you to do. Because if we think about it, we're like, oh, well, but this would happen. But will that be successful? I don't know if I can do that. Right? So in that sense, I see that he's already achieved the level of success that I'm going for. You know, he's had some qualifications. And that when he tells us to do something like that, it's going to be for our own business benefit, not for his benefit. So there was already some of that established there. So when he says that, it's like, okay, I can see what he's saying, that we have to get out of our own way and just do it. And this is exactly the instructions that we're getting here is, you know, get out of our own way and just listen to the spiritual master, the spiritual teacher, because they do have our best interest in heart at heart. Sometimes we don't even have our best interest at heart. Right? Like we think, oh, um, I'm feeling really stressed out and I just need to relax. And we might relax with a beer or a glass of wine. Well, we know that's not good for us in the long run. But we're not acting in our own best interest. We're acting in that moment to feel just a little bit better. Um, even though sometimes, you know, people can feel worse when they um, come down off of the high or, you know, the, their hangover. So as the alcohol is living their system. And we have to understand that surrender doesn't mean enslavement. We're still going to be inquiring, but we're inquiring in a, with this mood of, learning and curiosity, not with this mood of, you know, um, defiance and trying to prove someone wrong. So we also have to have faith and trust that the spiritual master is going to guide us in on the right path to Krishna. So we have so many qualities that we ourselves have to have, you know, gentle, kind, humble, inquiring submissively, surrendered, Faith, trust, determination. Um, and so that's why it's really important that we are qualified ourselves and we are turning to a qualified spiritual master. And Arjuna, his great gift to us is he actually actually teaches us how to inquire submissively, how to surrender. And we owe him a great, a great debt of gratitude, right? That we can really never repay because if, it, if he didn't have this quality of surrender, he would have never questioned Krishna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. And we would never have the Bhagavad Gita, which is like our manual of life that we can consult to on how to live our lives to achieve perfection, to achieve self-realization. And it teaches us how to surrender, how to learn about how to surrender. Who is Krishna? And what is our relationship to him? And why is it important to surrender to Krishna? So, 
you know, we can maybe start to repay our debt of gratitude by reading, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, by honoring the Bhagavad Gita, by following his example of surrendering to a spiritual master, by qualifying ourselves as qualified students of our spiritual teacher. So this is the examples that we want to, the, you know, lessons that we want to learn from Arjuna's examples. So I'll stop here and see if we have any questions or comments. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you for wonderful class as usual, coming from wonderful devotee like yourself. Thank you. Very surrendered soul for for many, many years. I know her, what, 30 years or so? Yes, since I was a little girl. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Very, very surrendered and very intelligent, very knowledgeable and doctor now. That's good. Thank you. Uh, one question that I had, you talked so wonderfully about the qualities of Arjun and related to the modern day scenario. Um, generally in India, people talk about that we should not keep Bhagavad Gita at home because it will create fight at home. So how do we combine the two, listening to Arjun, the qualities of Arjun and the message of Bhagavad Gita but at the same time this um, uh, thought if you keep Bhagavad Gita or Mahabharata at home it will bring fight so how do we reconcile that? So first we have to look at why would it bring a fight? Why would having the Bhagavad Gita at home by itself like what about that brings up the fight? So it could be sometimes um, some thoughts that come to my mind is that somebody has some fear that, oh, if somebody reads the Bhagavad Gita in the family, then they may renounce everything and leave the family. So there's that fear of, of losing, you know, like the husband might be fearful of losing the wife if she reads the Bhagavad Gita because she'll be like, oh, I don't want to be part of this world. And, you know, or the wife may fear losing the husband or... They may fear losing the children because the child will be like, I'm renouncing, I'm not going to go to university or, you know, do anything other than surrender and become a full-time devotee. So that would be one thing that comes up if there's a Bhagavad Gita there. So we also have to learn why it would bring that fight, what is going on with the other person, because one of the things we learn in the Bhagavad Gita is compassion. And along with compassion is empathy. And empathy is understanding what the other person is feeling, going through, and looking at the world through their point of view. So as one who's on this path of becoming a pure devotee, we always want to think of what is the other person thinking? How can we alleviate their fears? So it could be just opening up a line of communication. Why does this Bhagavad Gita feel threatening to you? Why, what of it in and of itself is you know, the problem. Because the book itself is just a book. Okay? If you bring a Bhagavad Gita and it sits there and nobody reads it, it's not going to it, cause any problems. If somebody reads it, but they're not reading it with this idea of surrendering, they're just reading it as if it was a textbook, 
it's not going to cause any problems. What would cause problems is somebody's reading it because they're having some level of unhappiness already in their life, and they're looking, they're seeking answers. And when we read the Bhagavad Gita in that in that mood of seeking answers, we'll find the answers. And that's what's fearful with a lot of people, right? What if I find the answers? We actually ourselves have the same fear, which is why we haven't surrendered 100%. We still keep one leg attached on the land and one in the boat, right? And then this is problemsome because we can't balance ourselves properly. You know, if the boat goes too far, we're stretched a little too thin. So we have the same fear of, what if I read the Bhagavad Gita and I fully surrender to Krishna and I, you know, denounce all sense gratification? Um, so we have to address that fear within ourselves as well. Right? And a lot of that fear comes from things that we were taught as children, things that we have seen by, you know, perception, we have seen as adults. So we call them, in, in the personal development world, we call these fears um, life-limiting beliefs or life-limiting lies. So these are lies that we tell ourselves to keep ourselves comfortable. We tell ourselves, if we read the Bhagavad Gita, then we'll surrender. And if we surrender, then the material world will not mean anything and my, I won't get along with my family. And, you know, for me, I've shared this before, for me, my fear is like, I won't be able to relate to other people. I won't have any friends. You know, I'll be all alone. But we see, if we actually look, we see that that's not the case. That, you know, my spiritual master, Jamal Krishna Goswami, had so many friends. He had very nice, great relationships. And he related to everybody. He could come into a room and meet someone and immediately relate to them and speak to them in such a way that they felt heard and understood. So there's this belief within ourselves that, if we really examine it, we see that it comes from some experience that we've had, something we've been told over and over again, that we have to just say, oh, that's not true. What's really true is that we'll actually become better family members. Our relationships will actually thrive, right? So we have to address those fears that we have you know, around surrounding the Bhagavad Gita. I hope that answered your question. Any other questions? So, as a, if I can ask, you know, as a doctor, when you treat patients, so do you tell them, you rascal, you're not this body, you're a spirit soul. Just get over it. Um, no, because we have to uh, deal with people according to what they're ready to hear and according to their level of understanding. And um, it's an interesting thing that you bring up because, you know, in a 15-minute visit, there's really not much time to talk about much else um, than, you know, what medicines are you on? Let's refill your medicines. All right, we'll see you back in a month or two, right? And this is one of my big issues with the current modern healthcare system, that there is no, especially the way it's going, there's no... Um, true relationship between the patient and the doctor anymore. It's all about, you know, seeing more patients throughout the day and having to spend less and less time with the patient. Ideally, which is one of the reasons why I stopped working in the medical clinical world, 
ideally, you know, I'd love to get into um, learning about my patient, uh, understanding what makes them tick, understanding how, you know, wh- how I can give them a message that they can understand, that we can start eating healthier. You know, I can talk to them about eating less meat or no meat. I can talk to them about exercising. I can talk to them about how are they sleeping, how are they managing stress. You know, do they have good, healthy, thriving relationships? Are they smoking, drinking? These kinds of things doesn't happen in a 15-minute visit. Even, you know, like I can get some preliminary answers in an hour, but it takes seeing patients over and over again, getting that established relationship. So I bring that up because there was a survey that was done um, several years ago that they asked patients, you know, how would you feel if your doctor talked to you about spirituality, about God? And I think, like, majority of the patients, maybe 70% or more, were open to the idea of discussing spirituality in the clinical setting. Um, I think 50 or 60% actually wanted doctors to discuss spirituality with them. And I think they said something like 30 or 40% wanted to pray with their doctors. So patients actually want that, but the medical industry doesn't really allow for that kind of time. The healthcare industry doesn't allow for that kind of time. Whereas if, you know, the way I'm looking at setting up, it's more of like coaching. Let's let's look at the things in your life that are in your way, affecting you from, you know, eating healthier, all those things that I mentioned. And when it comes to managing stress, well, that's where I use my opening to talk about spirituality because... Spirituality is a great way to manage stress, but sometimes it can be a source of stress, right? Like there's um, societal expectations of what you're wanting to do, how much you volunteer, things like that. So we can kind of get under an understanding of what drives a person, how I can speak to them about spirituality in, the, in terms of their relationship with God, um, and then the relationship with other people that are also on that same path that they are with God. So, you know, it's something that I do now. Uh, it's not something that I was able to do as just a regular doctor practicing in clinic. I think you had a question? On that subject, the People, you're trying to make people feel more healthy or increase their health. And we know personally that in health, is our health increased according to what we eat. Like if, if we drink good water, have oranges in the morning, only eat food cooked in ghee, have a... Hot milk at night. Make sure it's milk that's like pure milk that's doesn't it's not adulterated. That these these things are definitely uh, result in in how we how our health is you know, in every way. So, your how do you help people become healthy if they're eating um, all kinds of Bad food, fast foods, uh, meat, fish, eggs, of course, and then plus chemicals that, and and then uh, they 
because they don't, they don't may not even be drinking water at all. They just spend all their time drinking beer or sodas. So, and like you said, and they may be smoking also. So, how what kind of how do you meet that challenge? You're trying to help them become healthy, and they're living a very a completely unhealthy lifestyle. Yeah, so um, we do know that there are things that we can do. You know, obviously I have a disagreement with the whole milk thing because I've seen studies that even unadulterated, unpasteurized milk is not healthy for the body. But that's neither here nor there. So um, what we really do is, first and foremost, I get an assessment of where the person's at and their willingness to change. So it's, it's a technique called motivational interviewing. Um, there's different ways that you we can seek out that information. Because all of these things that you describe, how we eat, what we eat, how we exercise, these are all habits. We first break it down to these patterns of habits that we have. And how can we change habits? Right. So first and foremost, we have to want to change the habit. Um, the other thing is we have to make it worth it. Is it worth it? The person has to believe that it's worth changing to change. So those are the kinds of things that we work on. So before they even believe that it's worth changing, one of the things that I do is give education. I talk about how meat, fish, and eggs affects the body, even dairy affects the body, how fruits and vegetables and plant foods um, affect the body, right? And how, like all of these things that we do, you know, nutrition probably is about 60, 70% of our health picture. The other is how much we move and exercise, um, how we manage stress. You know, we can have people that eat super healthy, they exercise, but they don't have a good stress management technique. They're still going to be sick. Um, if you're not sleeping well, right, that's also going to affect so many things. So... The other 30% comes from those other activities of our health picture. And all of it's habits. So we just have to establish, you know, how do we establish good habits? Well, one, you have to want to change. You have to feel it's worth it to change. And then once you get those things, like you feel it's worth it, then, you know, I look at small changes at a time, right? In Bhagavad Gita 6.25, Krishna says, gradually, gradually, with faith and determination, so the person has to have faith that it's going to work, that it's worth it if it works. And then they have to be determined to make it work. But it's not like we do overnight, like January 1st is coming up um, Saturday. Yeah. So, you know, on January 1st, we make resolutions like I'm going to be super healthy. And January 1st, you're going to, you know, cut out all meat, fish, and eggs, all processed foods, all, you know, and just going to eat all unprocessed whole plant foods, right, unprocessed grains, um, unprocessed lentils and beans, fruits and vegetables that are freshly cooked, very little oil, if any oil at all, you know, just fresh, right? And then you're going to exercise. And then, like, you do, you're going to do all these things starting on January 1st. And by January 2nd, you're doing nothing, right? or January 3rd, because it's too much. It was overwhelming. So I'm, I'm a big believer in small steps. Even the steps that we take can be small, er, right? 
let's say you want to do all these things, and I'll say, okay, let's just start with um, eating a little healthier. You know, replace one item with one meal with a vegetable item, right? Like, eat one more vegetable during lunchtime for a week or two weeks, and then let's slowly build on that, right? And I always think it's easier to create a new habit than it is to break a bad habit. And the more we create new habits, the less time we have for bad habits, so they automatically get broken. The more fruits and vegetables you eat, the less meat and fish you're going to eat because you can only eat a certain amount during the day. right? So in our mind, it's also easier to add things than it is to take away things. So those are just a few things that like, I look at when I'm talking to a person. What are they willing to do? What are they capable of doing? What do they believe that they're capable of doing? Because that's also the most important thing. right? They may feel, well, I tried this in the past, and now I know that I'm, like, I'm a failure at this. Those limiting beliefs that we keep ourselves down with. Because in the past, we didn't succeed, so we're not going to succeed in the future. Um, I was, again, when I was listening to Les Brown this weekend, he was saying, like, there was a person who had tried to quit smoking for 15 years, tried everything possible, wanted to quit, um, and he had gone to hypnosis, he'd gone to acupuncture, he'd gone to you know the patch, the medicines, everything, and he would quit for a while and he'd start up again. And somebody said something to him one time where, you know, he's like, before you light up that cigarette, think about all the things that you lost because you lit up that cigarette. Think about all the things you will gain if you don't light up that cigarette. And he didn't light up that cigarette. He was done. Like, that was just shifting his way of thinking. It made it worth it. He was like, it's no longer worth it to smoke the cigarette. You know, he saw his own father die of cancer. Then it's no longer worth it. So, you know, at the time that Les Brown was sharing the story, that person hadn't smoked in, like, 20 years, you know. So it's it's kind of figuring out those things about each of us, right? Like getting to that point of, oh, this is what's going to make it worth it for me, and this is what makes it not worth it anymore, right? So in terms of changing habits, like um, when I gave up dairy, it was hard. I liked it a lot. But when I, I did it because it affected my health, Greatly, even unpasteurized, you know, milk. It's been shown to have increased inflammation in the body. Well, one of the things that would happen with me is I would have severe allergy reaction, um, mucus production, coughing, sneezing, wheezing, having to use an inhaler. Um, so, like, literally, eating dairy affects my breathing. So, if I see something, and now it doesn't happen, but in the beginning, if I would see something that I, you know, like. In the past, I enjoyed it was an indulgence, but because it had dairy in it, I knew how it would affect my body, and it wasn't worth it to me anymore. Right? It wasn't worth not being able to breathe properly, to eat, you know, something that has butter in it or something that has ghee in it. Um, so, and then you know, when I started researching more about that, I found that there was actually a, a process that happens to all of us, and it shows up differently. So someone might show up, you know, they, they're eating meat, fish, and eggs, 
and they may have diabetes, and someone else may have arthritis, and someone else may have cancer, and so it has it all affects the body. It's just it affects it differently. So even when it comes to spiritual life, chanting, you know, it's a habit. We're creating this habit so that it no longer is a habit, right? Like it's it's no longer something we have to think about. We just chant automatically. Um, you know, avoiding things that have dairy is not something I think about anymore. I never had to think about avoiding meat. Meat was nothing that ever attracted me. I never saw it as food, right? So in that same way, it's like when we start chanting and we get into that habit of chanting and then we're really delving in deep and relishing the nectar from chanting, we don't even have to think about it anymore. It's not like we have to be like, oh my God, okay, this is when I'm going to chant my rants because you're going to be chanting all the time. So that's where that that transition from habit to it's just your part of life. Like That's where we want to be with a lot of our good habits, a lot of our spiritual habits, right? So anyway, I'll end here since we've gone a little over. So thank you so much. Dharantara Srimad Bhagavatam Ki.